chapter five part one of eve of the revolution by carl becker this librivox recording is in the public domain a little discreet conduct it has been his thomas hutchinson's principle from a boy that mankind are to be governed by the discerning few and it has been ever since his ambition to be the hero of the few samuel adams we have not been so quiet these five years if it were not for two or three adamses we should do well enough thomas hutchinson in december seventeen seventy one horace walpole a persistent if not an infallible political prophet was of opinion that all the storms that for a decade had distressed the empire were at last happily blown over among which storms he included as relatively of minor importance the disputes with the colonies during two years following this prediction might well have appeared to moderate-minded men entirely justified american affairs were barely mentioned in parliament and a few paragraphs in the annual register were thought sufficient to chronicle for english readers events of interest occurring across the atlantic in the colonies themselves an unwanted tranquillity prevailed rioting as an established social custom disappeared in most of the places where it had formerly been so much practised the sons of liberty retaining the semblance of an organization were rarely in the public eye save at the annual celebrations of the repeal of the stamp act quite harmless occasions devoted to the expression of patriotic sentiments merchants and landowners again prosperous were content to fall back into accustomed habits of life conscious of duty done without too much stress readily believing their liberties finally vindicated against encroachments from abroad and their privileges secure against unwarranted and dangerous pretensions at home the people appear to be weary of their altercations with the mother country mr johnson the connecticut agent wrote to wedderburn in october seventeen seventy one a little discreet conduct on both sides would perfectly re-establish that warm affection and respect towards great britain for which this country was once remarkable discreet conduct was nowhere more necessary than in massachusetts where the people perhaps because they were much accustomed to them grew weary of altercations less easily than in most colonies yet even in massachusetts there was a marked waning of enthusiasm after the high excitement occasioned by the boston massacre a certain disintegration of the patriotic party james otis recovered from a temporary fit of insanity only to grow strangely suspicious of samuel adams mr hancock discreetly holding his peace attended to his many thriving and very profitable business ventures john adams somewhat unpopular for having defended and procured the acquittal of the soldiers implicated in the massacre retired in high dudgeon from public affairs to the practice of his profession in high dudgeon with every one concerned with himself first of all and with the people who so easily forgot their interests and those who had served them and with the british government and all fawning tools of ministers of whom mr thomas hutchinson was chief 
meanwhile mr hutchinson so roughly handled in the secret diary of the rising young lawyer was the recipient of new honours having been made governor of the province to succeed francis bernard for once finding himself almost popular he thought he perceived a disposition in all the colonies and even in massachusetts to let the controversy subside though there are a small majority sour enough yet when they seek matter for protests remonstrances they are puzzled where to charge the grievances which they look for the new governor looked forward to happier days and an easy administration hancock and most of the party are quiet he said and all of them except adams abate of their virulence adams would push the continent into a rebellion to-morrow if it was in his power no one in the year seventeen seventy was better fitted than samuel adams either by talent and temperament or the circumstances of his position to push the continent into a rebellion unlike most of his patriot friends he had neither private business nor private profession to fall back upon when public affairs grew tame his only business being as one might say the public business his only profession the definition and defence of popular rights in this profession by dint of single-minded devotion to it through a course of years he had indeed become wonderfully expert and had already achieved for himself the enviable position of known and named leader in every movement of opposition to royal or magisterial prerogative in this connection no exploit had brought him so much distinction as his skilful management of the popular uprising which had recently forced governor hutchinson to withdraw the troops from boston the event was no by-play in the life of samuel adams no amateur achievement accomplished on the side but the serious business of a man who during ten years had abandoned all private pursuits and had embraced poverty to become a tribune of the people samuel adams had not inherited poverty nor had he after all exactly embraced it but had as it were naturally drifted into it through indifference to worldly gain the indifference which men of single and fixed purpose have for all irrelevant matters the elder samuel adams was a merchant of substance and of such consequence in the town of boston that in harvard college where students were named according to the prominence of their families his son's name was fifth in a class of twenty-two in seventeen forty eight upon the death of his father samuel jr accordingly inherited a very decent property considered so at least in that day a spacious old house in purchase street together with a well-established malt business for business however the young man and not so young either was without any aptitude whatever being entirely devoid of the acquisitive instinct and neither possessing nor ever being able to acquire any skill in the fine art of inducing people to give for things more than it costs to make them these deficiencies the younger adams had already exhibited before the death of his father from whom he received on one occasion a thousand pounds half of which he promptly loaned to an impecunious friend and which he would in any case doubtless have lost as he soon did the other half on his own account in such incompetent hands the malt business soon fell to be a liability rather than an asset other liabilities accumulated notably one incurred by the tax collectors of the town of boston of whom samuel adams was one during the years from seventeen fifty six to seventeen sixty four 
for one reason or another on adams's part certainly on account of his humane feelings and general business inefficiency the collectors fell every year a little behind in the collections and one day found themselves declared on the official records to be indebted to the town in the sum of nine thousand eight hundred and seventy eight pounds this indebtedness mr hutchinson and other gentlemen not well disposed towards samuel adams conveniently and frequently referred to in later years as a defalcation in this year of seventeen sixty four when he had lost his entire patrimony except the old house in purchase street now somewhat rusty for want of repair samuel adams was married to elizabeth wells it was his second marriage the first having taken place in seventeen forty nine of which the fruit was a son and a daughter samuel adams was then it was the year of the sugar act forty-two years old that is to say at the age when a man's hair begins to turn gray when his character is fixed when his powers such as they are are fully matured well known as a poor provider an improvident man who had lost a fair estate had failed in business and was barely able and sometimes not able to support his small family these mundane matters concerned samuel adams but little to john adams he said on one occasion that he never looked forward in life never planned laid a scheme or formed a design for laying up anything for himself or others after him this was the truth inexplicable as it must have seemed to his more provident cousin it was even less than the truth during the years following seventeen sixty four samuel adams renounced all pretence of private business giving himself wholly to public affairs while his good wife with excellent management made his stipend as clerk of the assembly serve for food and obtained through the generosity of friends or her own ingenious labours indispensable clothes for the family frugality that much lauded virtue in the eighteenth century needed not to be preached in the old purchase street home but life went on there somehow or other decently enough not without geniality yet with evident piety the old bible is still preserved from which each evening some member of the family read a chapter and at every meal the head of the house said grace returning thanks for god's benefits if samuel adams at the age of forty-two was known for a man who could not successfully manage his own affairs he was also known and very well known for a man with a singular talent for managing the affairs of the community he could manage successfully for example town meetings and every sort of business great or small incidental to local politics this talent he may have inherited from his father who was himself a notable of the neighbourhood one of the organisers of the new south church and prominent about seventeen twenty four in a club popularly known as the calkers club formed for the purpose of laying plans for introducing certain persons into places of trust and power and was himself from time to time introduced into such places of trust and power as justice of the peace deacon selectman and member of the provincial assembly from an early age the younger samuel exhibited a marked aptitude for this sort of activity and was less likely to be found in his counting-house a counting of his money than in some hospitable tavern or back shop discussing town topics with local worthies samuel adams was born to serve on committees he had the innate slant of mind that properly belongs to a moderator of mass meetings called to aggravate a crisis with the soul of a jacobin he was most at home in clubs secret clubs of which every one had heard and few were members designed at best to accomplish some particular good for the people 
at all events meeting regularly to sniff the approach of tyranny in the abstract academically safeguarding the commonwealth by discussing the first principles of government from the days of anne hutchinson boston never lacked clubs and the caulker's club was the prototype of many rather more secular and political than religious or transcendental which flourished in the years preceding the revolution john adams in that diary which tells us so much that we wish to know gives us a peep inside one of these clubs the caucus club which met regularly at one period in the garret of tom dawes's house there they smoke tobacco till you cannot see from one end of the garret to the other there they drink flip i suppose and there they choose a moderator who puts questions to the vote regularly and selectmen assessors collectors wardens fire wards and representatives are regularly chosen before they are chosen in the town uncle fairfield story ruddock adams cooper and a rudis indestestaca moles of others are members they send committees to wait on the merchants club and to propose and join in the choice of men and measures the artist copley in the familiar portrait by which posterity knows samuel adams chose to represent him in conventional garb on a public and dramatic occasion standing erect eyes flashing and mouth firm set pointing with admonitory finger to the charter of massachusetts bay a portrait well suited to hang in the art museum or in the meeting-place of the daughters of the revolution a different effect would have been produced if the man had been placed in tom dawes's garret dimly seen through tobacco smoke sitting with coat off drinking flip in the midst of uncle fairfield story cooper and a rudis indigestaque moles this was his native habitat an environment precisely suited to his peculiar talent samuel adams had a peculiar talent that indispensable combination of qualities possessed by all great revolutionists of the crusading type such as jean jacques rousseau john brown or mazzini when a man abandons his business or job and complacently leaves the clothing of his children to wife or neighbors in order to drink flip and talk politics ordinary folk are content to call him a lazy lout ne'er-do-well worthless fellow or scamp samuel adams was not a scamp he might have been no more than a ne'er-do-well perhaps if cosmic forces had not opportunely provided him with an occupation which his contemporaries and posterity could regard as a high service to humanity in his own eyes this was the view of the situation which justified his conduct when he was about to depart for the first continental congress a number of friends contributed funds to furnish him forth with presentable apparel a suit of clothes new wig new hat six pair of the best silk hose six pair of fine thread ditto six pair of shoes and it being modestly inquired of him whether his finances were not rather low than otherwise he replied it was true that was the case but he was very indifferent about these matters so that his poor abilities were of any service to the public upon which the gentleman obliged him to accept a purse containing about fifteen or twenty johannes to accept so much and still preserve one's self-respect would be impossible to ordinary men under ordinary circumstances fate had so ordered the affairs of samuel adams that integrity of character required him to be an extraordinary man acting under extraordinary circumstances the character of his mind as well as the outward circumstances of his life predisposed samuel adams to think that a great crisis in the history of america and of the world confronted the men of boston there was in him some innate scholastic quality some strain of doctrinaire puritan inheritance diverted to secular interests that gave direction to all his thinking in seventeen forty three upon receiving the degree of master of arts from harvard college 
he argued the thesis whether it be lawful to resist the supreme magistrate if the commonwealth cannot otherwise be preserved we may suppose that the young man acquitted himself well reasoning with great nicety in favour of the legality of an illegal action doubtless to the edification of governor shirley who was present and who perhaps felt sufficiently remote from the performance being himself only an actual supreme magistrate presiding over a real commonwealth and indeed for most young men a college thesis is but an exercise for sharpening the wits rarely dangerous in its later effects but in the case of samuel adams the ability to distinguish the speculative from the actual reality seemed to diminish as the years passed after seventeen sixty four relieved of the pressure of life's anxieties and daily nourishing his mind on premises and conclusions reasonably abstracted from the relative and the conditioned circumstance he acquired in a high degree the faculty of identifying reality with propositions about it so that for example liberty seemed threatened if improperly defined and a false inference from an axiom of politics appeared the same as evil intent to take away a people's rights thus it was that from an early date in respect to the controversy between the colonies and the mother country samuel adams became possessed of settled convictions that were capable of clear and concise presentation and that were at once impersonal and highly subjective for which outward events the stamp act the towns and duties the appointment of thomas hutchinson as governor or whatever furnished as it were the suggestion only the convictions themselves being largely the result of inward brooding the fine-spun product of his own ratiocinative mind the crisis which thus threatened in the mind of samuel adams was not an ordinary one no mere complication of affairs or creaking of worn-out institutions or honest difference of opinion about the expediency or the legality of measures it was a crisis engendered deliberately by men of evil purpose public enemies well known and often named samuel adams who had perhaps not heard of even one of the many materialistic interpretations of history thought of the past as chiefly instructive in connection with certain great epochal conflicts between liberty and tyranny a political manichaeanism in which the principle of liberty was embodied in the virtuous many and the principle of tyranny in the wicked few those who read history must know it for a notorious fact that ancient peoples had lost their liberties at the hands of designing men leagued and self-conscious conspirators against the welfare of the human race thus the yoke was fastened upon the romans millions enslaved by a few now in the year seventeen seventy one another of these epochal conflicts was come upon the world and samuel adams living in heroic days was bound to stand in the forefront of the virtuous against restless adversaries forming the most dangerous plans for the ruin of the reputation of the people in order to build their own greatness upon the destruction of their liberties a superficial observer might easily fall into the error of supposing that the restless adversaries and divining conspirators against whom patriots had to contend were all in england on the contrary the most persistent enemies of liberty were americans residing in the midst of the people whom they sought to despoil one might believe that in england the general inclination is to wish that we may preserve our liberties and perhaps even the ministry could for some reasons find it in their hearts to be willing that we should be restored to the state we were in before the passing of the stamp act even lord hillsborough richly meriting the curses of the disinterested and better part of the colonists was by no means to be reckoned the most inveterate and active of all the conspirators against our rights there are others on this side of the atlantic 
who have been more insidious in plotting the ruin of our liberties than even he and they are the more infamous because the country they would enslave is that very country in which to use the words of their adulators and expectants they were born and educated of all these restless adversaries and infamous plotters of ruin the chief in the mind of samuel adams was probably mr thomas hutchinson judged only by what he did and said and by such other sources of information as are open to the historian thomas hutchinson does not appear to have been prior to seventeen seventy one an enemy of the human race one of his ancestors mistress anne hutchinson poor woman had indeed been it was as far back as sixteen thirty seven an enemy of the boston church but as a family the hutchinsons appear to have kept themselves singularly free from notoriety or other grave reproach thomas hutchinson himself was born in seventeen eleven in garden court street boston of rich but honest parents a difficult character which he managed for many years to maintain with reasonable credit in seventeen seventy one he was a grave elderly man of sixty years more distinguished than any of his forebears had been having since the age of twenty-six been honored with every important elective and appointed office in the province including that of governor which he had with seeming reluctance just accepted it may be that thomas hutchinson was ambitious but if he elbowed his way into office by solicitation or by the mean arts of an intriguer the fact was well concealed he was not a member of the caucus club so far as is known he was not a member of any club designed to introduce certain persons into places of trust and power except indeed of the club if one may call it such composed of the best families closely interrelated by marriage and social intercourse mostly wealthy enjoying the leisure and the disposition to occupy themselves with affairs and commonly regarding themselves as forming a kind of natural aristocracy whose vested duty it was to manage the commonwealth to this club mr hutchinson belonged and it was no doubt partly through its influence without any need of solicitation on his part that offices were thrust upon him one morning in september seventeen sixty it was the day following the death of chief justice sewell mr hutchinson was stopped in the street by the first lawyer in the province jeremiah gridley who assured him that he mr hutchinson must be mr sewell's successor and it soon appeared that other principal lawyers together with the surviving judge of the superior court were of the same opinion as mr gridley although the place was an attractive one mr hutchinson distrusted his ability to discharge competently the duties of a chief justice since he had never had any systematic training as a lawyer besides as he was aware james otis senior who desired the place and made no secret of the fact that he had formerly been promised it by governor shirley at once became active in pressing his claims upon the attention of governor bernard in this solicitation he was joined by his son james otis jr mr hutchinson on the contrary refrained from all solicitation so he tells us at least and even warned governor bernard that it would perhaps be wiser to avoid any trouble which the otises might be disposed to make in case they were disappointed this line of conduct may have been only a shrewder form of solicitation the proof of which to some minds would be that mr hutchinson was in fact appointed to be chief justice this appointment was afterwards recalled as one of mr hutchinson's many offences although at the time it seems to have given general satisfaction especially to the lawyers the lawyers may well have been pleased for the new chief justice was a man whose outstanding abilities even more than his place in society marked him for a responsible position thomas hutchinson possessed the efficient mind 
no one surpassed him in wide and exact knowledge always at command of the history of the province of its laws and customs of past and present practice in respect to the procedure of administration industrious and systematic in his habits of work conscientious in the performance of his duties down to the last jot and tittle of the law he was pre-eminently fitted for the neat and expeditious dispatch of official business and his sane and trenchant mind habituated by long practice to the easy mastery of details was prompt to pass upon any practical matter however complicated an intelligent and just judgment it was doubtless thought in an age when the law was not too highly specialized to be understood by any but the indoctrinated that these traits would make him a good judge as they had made him a good counsellor not all people it is true are attracted by the efficient mind and mr hutchinson in the course of years had made enemies among whom were many who still thought of him as the man chiefly responsible for the abolition some eleven years before of what was probably the most vicious system of currency known to colonial america nevertheless in the days before the passing of the stamp act mr hutchinson was commonly well thought of both for character and ability and might still without offence be mentioned as a useful and honoured public servant mr hutchinson did not at any time in his life regard himself as an enemy of the human race or of america or even of liberty rightly considered perhaps he had not the fine enthusiasm for the human race that herder or jean jacques rousseau had but at least he wished it well and to america the country in which he was born and educated and in which he had always lived he was profoundly attached of america he was as proud as a cultivated and unbigoted man well could be extremely jealous of her good name abroad and prompt to stand in any way that was appropriate and customary in defence of her rights and liberties to rights and liberties in general and to those of america in particular he had given long and careful thought it was perhaps characteristic of his practical mind to distinguish the word liberty from the various things which it might conceivably represent and to think that of these various things some were worth more than others what any of them was worth being a relative matter depending largely upon circumstances speaking generally liberty in the abstract apart from particular and known conditions was only a phrase a brassy tinkle in mr hutchinson's ear meaning nothing unless it meant mere absence of all constraint the liberty which mr hutchinson prized was not the same as freedom from constraint not liberty in this sense or in any sense but the welfare of a people neatly ordered for them by good government was what he took to be the chief end of politics and from this conception it followed that in a remove from a state of nature to the most perfect state of government there must be a great restraint of natural liberty the limitations proper to be placed upon natural liberty could scarcely be determined by abstract speculation or with mathematical precision but would obviously vary according to the character and circumstances of a people always keeping in mind the peace and good order of the particular community as the prime object in all such matters reasonable men would seek enlightenment not in the utopias of philosophers but in the history of nations and taking a large view of history the history more particularly of the british empire and of massachusetts bay it seemed to mr hutchinson as it seemed to john locke and to baron montesquieu that a proper balance between liberty and authority had been very nearly attained in the british constitution as nearly perhaps as common human frailty would permit the prevailing thirst for liberty which seemed to be the ruling passion of the age mr hutchinson was therefore able to contemplate with much sanity and detachment in governments under arbitrary rules such a passion for liberty might he admitted have a salutary effect but in governments in which as much freedom is enjoyed 
as can consist with the ends of government as was the case in this province it must work anarchy and confusion unless there be some external power to restrain it in seventeen seventy one thomas hutchinson was perfectly convinced that this passion for liberty during several years rising steadily in the heads of the most unstable part of the population the most unstable both for character and estates had brought massachusetts bay to a state not far removed from anarchy not that he was unaware of the mistakes of ministers the measures of mr grenville he had regarded as unwise from every point of view in behalf of the traditional privileges of the colonies privileges which their conduct had well justified and in behalf of the welfare of the empire he had protested against these measures as also later against the measures of mr townsend and of all these measures he still held the same opinion that they were unwise measures nevertheless parliament had undoubtedly a legal right other rights in the political sense mr hutchinson knew nothing of to pass them and the passing of legal measures however unwise was not to his mind clear evidence of a conspiracy to establish absolute despotism on the ruins of english liberty mr hutchinson was doubtless temperamentally less inclined to fear tyranny than anarchy of the two evils he doubtless preferred such oppression as might result from parliamentary taxation to any sort of liberty the attainment of which might seem to require the looting of his ancestral mansion by a boston mob in seventeen seventy one at the time of his accession to the governorship mr hutchinson was therefore of opinion that there must be an abridgment of what is called english liberty the liberty thomas hutchinson enjoyed least and desired most to have abridged was the liberty of being governed in that province where he had formerly been happy in the competent discharge of official duties by a self-constituted and illegal popular government entrenched in the town of boston in a letter which he wrote in seventeen sixty five but did not send he said it will be some amusement to you to have a more circumstantial account of the model of government among us i will begin with the lowest branch partly legislative partly executive this consists of the rabble of the town of boston headed by one mackintosh who i imagine you never heard of he is a bold fellow and is likely for a mancinialo as you can well conceive when there is occasion to burn or hang effigies or pull down houses these are employed but since government has been brought to a system they are somewhat controlled by a superior set consisting of the master masons and carpenters etc of the town of boston when anything of more importance is to be determined as opening the custom-house on any matter of trade these are under the direction of a committee of the merchants mr rowe at their head then molyneux solomon davis etc but all affairs of a general nature opening of the courts of law etc this is proper for a general meeting of the inhabitants of boston where otis with his mob high eloquence prevails in every motion in the town first determine what is necessary to be done and then apply either to the governor or council or resolve that it is necessary for the general court to correct it and it would be a very extraordinary resolve indeed that is not carried into execution this was in seventeen sixty five in seventeen seventy the matter had ceased to be amusing for every year the model government was brought to a greater perfection so that at last the town meeting prescriptively composed of certain qualified voters and confined to the determination of strictly local matters had not only usurped all the functions of government in the province which was bad enough but was completely under the thumb of every tom dick and harry who might wish to attend which was manifestly still worse there is a town meeting no sort of regard being had to any qualification of voters but all the inferior people meet together and at a late meeting the inhabitants of other towns who happened to be in town mixed with them and made they say themselves near three thousand 
their newspapers say four thousand when it is not likely there are one thousand five hundred legal voters in the town it is in other words being under the government of a mob this has given the lower part of the people such a sense of their importance that a gentleman does not meet with what used to be common civility and we are sinking into perfect barbarism the spirit of anarchy which prevails in boston is more than i am able to cope with the instigators of the mob it was well known were certain artful and self-seeking demagogues of whom the chief had formerly been james otis but in late years mr otis with his mob high eloquence had given way to an abler man samuel adams than whom mr hutchinson thought there was not a greater incendiary in the king's dominion or a man of greater malignity of heart or one who less scruples any measure however criminal to accomplish his purposes the letter undated and undirected in which thomas hutchinson pronounced this deliberate judgment on samuel adams was probably written about the time of his accession to the governorship that is to say about the time when mr johnson the connecticut agent was writing to wedderburn that the people seemed to grow weary of altercations and that a little discreet conduct on both sides would perfectly restore cordial relations between britain and her colonies in the way of a little discreet conduct even a very little not much was to be hoped for from either governor hutchinson or samuel adams in their dealings with each other unfortunately they had dealings with each other in the performance of official functions their incommensurable and repellent minds were necessarily brought to bear upon the same matters of public concern both unfortunately lived in boston and were likely any day to come face to face round the corner of some or other narrow street of that small town that reciprocal exasperation engendered by reasonable propinquity so essential to the life of altercations was therefore a perpetual stimulus to both men confirming each in his obstinate opinion of the other as a malicious and dangerous enemy of all that men hold dear thus it was that during the years seventeen seventy one and seventeen seventy two when if ever it appeared that others were growing weary of altercations these honourable men and trusted leaders did what they could to perpetuate the controversy by giving or taking occasion to recall ancient grudges or revive fruitless disputes wittingly or unwittingly they together managed during this time of calm to keep the dying embers alive against the day when some rising wind might blow them into devouring flames End of chapter five part one